Amen. Hey, let me just draw your attention to something that's going to do its own work to draw your attention to it. Man, our steeple squeaks when it's windy. It's super windy today. And so when you hear the, it's that thing. Like there's no angel perched up there ready to, you know, descend or, you know, however that, however you were going to think through that, that's what that is. We're all safe. All of us with any type of ADT, ADD, like, you know, executive function issues, like we're going to key into that constantly. Hey, just go there. Just go there, okay? Hey, this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in two places, so go ahead and start flipping to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, and if you want to go ahead and put something else in Matthew 21. So Matthew 16, we're going to pick up around verse 13, and then in Matthew 21, we're going to be in 1 through 11. And so if you don't have a Bible, own a Bible, have one on your phone, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use that, you can find a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know how to locate the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. And then as we make our way through, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. But Matthew uh, 16 is where we're going to start this morning. Hey, let me pray for us once again. Father God, we just pray that as we come into this place that you would, uh, by the power of your Spirit, be at work in our hearts, stirring up in us our affections for you. God, that you would be about the business of stirring up righteousness, of rooting out sin. It is this morning as we focus on the question of who Jesus is, that we would each walk away with an understanding of where we stand before Jesus on the basis of how we each answer that question. So God, I pray for those this morning who are struggling, who are weary, that you would come near to them as a father, that they would feel the ministry of your spirit of consolation, the spirit of comfort, your Holy Spirit would be rich in their lives, drawing them to a fresh experience of your love and care for them. And God, I pray for those this morning who are wrestling with, man, I don't know who Jesus is. I really don't understand why he came. I don't understand any of the things about this. And even to those who are opposed to your son Jesus. God, that this morning, that they would come to name him as Lord, that they would have a new experience of forgiveness than they've ever had before. And God, that they would truly come to know you in a saving way this morning. In Christ's name, amen, amen. Hey, listen, if you've been here for any length of time, any number of years, there are probably just a couple of, t- a couple of things food-wise you know about me that are pretty easy, and so let's just kind of put this to a test and see how adept you guys are. And so if you're to name my least favorite dessert, it would be? There you go. It's, bananas are truly heinous. Uh, it's a fruit that longs to be abused. It's disgusting. I get that it comes with its own wrapper and it should stay there, Okay. And then if you were to say the most delicious meat known to man is, wow, not nearly as many. And let's just go that one more time because I think it's, you know, it's, you need to know this. Uh, Ten years is coming up in June and my heart is beating solidly with cholesterol medication. So <laughs> the best meat available is, <laughs> man, it's so good to know that you know my heart. I think maybe. So it, like when you, we, we've been here some time together, so there are things you've come to know about me. There are things I've come to know about some of you. We recognize that 
what we see unfolding in Matthew 16 and, and, and really in Matthew 21 is I want us to focus on how people begin to answer the question of who Jesus is. And over this week and next week, so Palm Sunday and Easter, we're going to be really keying in uh, to catch a vision through Peter's vantage point, through Peter's eyes of kind of how he's seeing things and how these are shaping and how these things are working out. Because what we come to recognize is how we answer the question of who Jesus is has eternal consequences. Now, whether or not you, you get it right that I think banana pudding is the most disgusting thing in the world and I would eat bacon on pretty much anything is ultimately inconsequential. But of primary importance and of phenomenal consequence is who, how you answer the question of who Jesus is. We pick up in Matthew 16 and verse 13. Let me read uh, the first little section of text to us here, 13 through 17. It says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, he turns and asks this question, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And what's interesting about this passage is Jesus chooses to take the disciples deep into Gentile territory. And so he takes them deep into Gentile territory. They are uh, uh, about 25 miles or so north of the Sea of Galilee, and they're in this area that is known for pagan worship. And they're in this area, and they're in this city that really is just, there's a cave there that they believed that, uh, that gods would, would travel in some sense to the underworld through this area, that they would winter there. I guess it's a great place to winter in a cave. And so this area was known for paganism. So if you were to ask somebody, what do you know about Caesarea Philippi? They're like, ooh, they worship the god Pan there. So this is the scene, this is the scenario, right? Jesus takes the guys out, he has them kind of arrayed around him, and he throws out this question to them, as you kind of are traveling around, as you're seeing people, as you're rubbing uh, shoulders with people, who are people generally considering me to be? Well, the first thing they th say is, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Now, back in chapter 14, I think it's verse 2, Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded, had never seen John the Baptist and Jesus together, but he began to hear about this guy, Jesus, traveling around, and he's engaging, he's doing miracles. So Herod comes into this understanding, I know who it is, this is John the Baptist come back from the dead, and that's why he's able to engage, and that's why he's able to do miracles. And so that rumor began to travel around. When people would see Jesus come up, they'd say, that's him, that's John the Baptist, that's him, watch him, watch his head bobble. And so that, they came to this understanding of that's who he was. And he said, well, well, okay, so I understand that some people say that I'm John the Baptist, and what else? And he said, well, some people say that, that you're Elijah. Now, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 and Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6, what we read there is that Elijah's not coming back, but we're going to see this prophet in the vein, in the mantle, keeping with Elijah, and essentially he is going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. Now, what's interesting about that? What's interesting about that is John the Baptist actually was the forerunner of Jesus, 
and that he is this character spoken of in the book of Malachi. And Jesus is confused of being the forerunner, uh, actual, and he's accused of being this prophetic fulfillment of the forerunner. And then lastly, they say, okay, well, there are other people who are just kind of confused, and so they're glamming on to significant prophets of the past. And so they say that maybe you're Jeremiah or, or just one of the prophets. You're significant, but this is kind of pe- how people think you are. Now, Jesus interrupts this kind of what is the, 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 the prevailing wisdom on who I am, and he turns and he locks eyes with the disciples. And he says, but who do you say that I am? What an incredibly devastating at some level and penetrating question at another. When you begin to roll through your mind, who do you say Jesus is? And what we come to recognize, even as Christians, that who we say Jesus is should show up, should reveal itself in how we live our lives, how we relate to our spouse, how we uh, engage in the community, how we relate to God, who we say who Jesus is should be revealed in the way that we live. Now, Simon is always this guy. He's the first out of the boat. He's the quickest with the sword. He's the first to utter. And he is the spokesman for this group of disciples. He turns to Jesus and he speaks on behalf of the group. And listen to the two things he says. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Now the second one he takes really from the idea out of 1 Chronicles 17, 13. That out of the line of David, that God would raise up for himself a son, and this son we'd see fulfilled in the first, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. Peter gets it, right? I mean, like, gold star, uh, tick, tick, good. I mean, he gets it. He nails. He comes into this crystal clear understanding of who Jesus is. He cuts through John the Baptist. He cuts through Zechariah. He cuts through Elijah. He cuts through uh, Jeremiah. He's not one of the prophets. He is the Messiah. He's the one that all of Judaism has been waiting for. He's the long-awaited deliverer. He's the one that has the special anointing of God resting on him. He is the son of the living God. He's not the son of a dead God. He's not the son of Pan. He is the son of the living God, the one true living God that is set apart from all other deities. This is who he is. Jesus has a special moment with the disciples. You can almost have this sense of recognition of Jesus says, they have got it. The guys are here. They get it. They understand who I am. And he understands the significance of that moment in what he says to Peter next. He says, blessed are you. You're experiencing the highest moment in your relationship with me and the highest moment of religious ecstasy. This is the closest we've ever been. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Why? For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. What's he telling us there? He said, Simon didn't sit down with scrolls and he's rolling or he's unrolling the scrolls and he's reading and he's doing these things and he's, he's got all of these things kind of working out. It's not an application of his mind that led him to the conclusion. It's the divine supernatural work of God in his heart. He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Why was Simon blessed? Because he was visited by God 
for the revelation of who Jesus is. He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. So Jesus goes on to say something about Peter and something about the church. And we don't have time to really unpack a lot of this, but if we were to take time, let's just read it. I'll make a couple of comments. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the same lines used in Matthew 18. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He's not yet ready to be revealed to everyone. And in this moment, he wants Peter to understand the significance of what he's just said and how strong and stalwart the church will be. I know there are times when we look at the prevailing winds of culture and we think, can the church stand up to this? Will the church make it? We see this promise from Jesus before the church is beginning that the church is steadfast. Governments rise and fall. Leaders come and go. But the church of the eternal God lasts forever. Amen? So he moves through this, and look at what happens in, in verse 21. Jesus knows that they're ready. And knowing that they're ready, he moves into this next level of discipleship for them. He takes the disciples, and he begins to tell them over and over and over again. This is what we see. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show. This isn't a singular event. This isn't a one-time teaching. So over and again, what we see is that Jesus takes the disciples, and he begins to teach them, over and over and over again, something very simple and something incredibly profound. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He's got to go to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, it says he has to suffer many things from a particular group of people. It's from the elders, from the chief priests, and from the scribes. And what Jesus says in that is that the religious authorities existing in Israel today are the ones at the hands of the ones with, from whom I have to receive suffering and pain. So it's keying into the mind of the disciples. These guys are opposed to Jesus. We've experienced it. We've seen it. We've hoped in some sense in our hearts that the Pharisees, that the scribes and the Sadducees would turn, that they would come to know him, that their hearts would be softened before him. But what he's telling them is these are the ones, and it's at their hands I'm going to suffer. He names the who's who of, from the people that he will receive suffering, pain, and persecution from. He says, I've got to go there, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. I've got to suffer from them and be killed. The disciples knew what it was for Jesus to suffer. They knew what it was for Jesus to be ridiculed, to be run out of town, to, for people to threaten to stone him, for people to cry out and, and try and make him king forcibly. They knew what it was to see the ups and downs of ministry and life with Jesus. This is something different. He says, listen, I'm going to go there, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to stay there. I'm going to go there, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be ridiculed, and I'm going to be in pain, and it's going to be incredibly difficult, and I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to shirk my responsibility. I'm not going to look for a way of escape. In fact, I'm going to stay there to the point that they kill me. I think we feel the heaviness of that moment. 
Now listen, if you're raised in church, and, and this has just kind of been the, the, the warp and woof of your life, this has been your experience, then you recognize annually the church, as we go through this Easter season, that Jesus is betrayed, that Jesus is killed, and that he's raised again. But would you allow yourself and your heart to go there in this moment for the, to experience the pain of the disciples? To experience the longing of Jesus that he is preparing himself to die at the hand of his creation. To be rejected. That those given to the theological direction, the religious education of the nation of Israel are going to be those that, that beat him, that mock him, that put him to death. The very people he came to save mean him harm. And he means to stand in the way of their harm and to receive it to take upon himself their vengeance, to take upon himself their hatred of him. He says, I'm going to go there, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be raised on the third day. Peter, who moments before, in the reading of this, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Like, this is the zenith. This is the highest moment for him. Peter, you can just kind of see him. He's just like, all right, come on. Come on over here. Come on over here. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Break. 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 Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Like he's grabbing his robe to kind of pull him over. He's got him by the arm. I mean, this is the image in my mind at this moment because the text tells us he took him to himself. So he pulls him away from the group. And he said, and he began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Check it out. This is the fascinating thing about this. It says, Peter began to rebuke him, saying. Now, the word Peter uses here for rebuke is the word he heard Jesus use over and over and over again. When Jesus rebukes a demon, he uses this word. When Jesus rebukes the crowds, he uses this word. And so what Peter does is he remembers within the the caverns of his mind this word Jesus had thrown out time and time again. And Peter reaches back in there and he throws it at Jesus, thinking this will be the thing that shakes him from this course of foolery. This is foolishness, Jesus. You can't go down this path. I rebuke you. I'm telling you in the strongest way possible, this is wrongheaded. I'm telling you in the strongest way possible, the things you're saying that you're going to do don't make sense to me. They're not for your good. They're not for our good. You have to stop this course of action. Lord. Seems like an odd thing to say, right? Master and creator. Like I want to use, with all due respect, Lord, you be crazy. And Jesus knows Peter. He's known him before Peter was ever formed and fashioned in his mother's womb. He's known Peter before he ever struggled to swim in the waves. He knew Peter before he ever declared him as Lord and Savior. He knows Peter. He knows his heart. Peter doesn't want to see this happen to Jesus. He doesn't want to see his conception of Jesus come to an end. But what we see in the middle of this is that Peter doesn't really know who Jesus is. Because what we see is that the text describes, essentially, Jesus looks back over his shoulder. He locks eyes with Peter. And it's not in a moment of anger, y'all. It's in a moment of desperation. Because in this moment, what Jesus wants is Peter's heart. 
Jesus wants Peter to move from more than just a notional understanding of who he is, because it's not just enough to know him. We have to find ourselves aligning with his will. So in this moment, he tells Peter, the things you're asking me to do moves you from aligning with me to aligning with the enemy. And if that's where you're going to stand, then you stand with Satan. So he tells him to depart, to stand behind me. He says that you are a hindrance, you are a scandalizing object to me. Why is he doing this? He says, because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Jesus tells him that you're a hindrance, you're an obstacle to me, what he's calling to mind is this verse out of Isaiah, which is quoted in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8 says, The stone, speaking of Jesus, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it is a stone of stumbling. It is a rock of offense. You'll remember in in, uh, 1 Corinthians that Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, he says, we determined to preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. What Jesus says that Peter is being is an obstacle to the plan and purposes of God based on his failure to really know who Jesus is. Do you have a sense of what God's will and his purpose is for you? Do you have a sense in your life of what he's calling you to do, what it looks like for you to move forward in growing in holiness? Who do you say Jesus is? And how is that being revealed in how you live a life faithfully unto him? Sometime later, it was on a Sunday, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. He's traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. They stop off in Bethany, Bethphage. It's about two, three miles from Jerusalem. And he tells the disciples, listen, what I need you to do is to get up and go to a certain house. When you get to this house, you're going to find in that place a donkey tied up and a colt with her. I want you to untie them. I want you to bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you about this, say the master has need of them. I need them. Tells us that this was spoken of and took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples get up, they go, and, and they grab the colt, they grab the donkey. Jesus sits on the foal Uh, an animal that's never been ridden on before. There's no bridle. He's sitting on their coats as they're there. And from this area, people begin to follow him. They begin to chant and they begin to cry out for him. But let us not skip over what he says. In the middle of these things, it says, the disciples went and did as they directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put him on their cloaks and he sat on them. So here's the picture of Jesus coming in. And he's seated on a donkey. Now, within the Near Eastern culture around this time, when a king would go out and he would go out to battle, he would sit himself on a war horse. And so you look at the battle bow, you look at chariots, and you look at horses, and these were the weapons of war. So if he wanted to go out and he wanted to wage war, he would place himself on the back of a horse. But when he came home to his capital city, When he came home declaring peace, when he came home with an expectation 
of loyalty and an expectation that they were there to worship him, he would jettison the war horse and he would come into town riding a donkey. What Jesus does in riding that donkey into town is saying, come and enjoy my peace. Come and experience me as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Come experience peace. People are so incredibly ecstatic. They're crying out and they're shouting and they're declaring his praise all around and, 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 and they're just losing their minds. It says there are crowds before him and behind him. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the roads and the clouds that went, crowds that went before him and behind him are all crying out from the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, son of David. Do you hear the urgency in their voice? Do you hear the hopefulness in their hearts as they cry out and they recognize there is something acutely different about him? He's not coming in on a war horse. He's coming in in humility. He's coming in as a bringer of peace. We need you to save us. Save us in the highest. In some sense, they know who Jesus is. They know who he is. In some sense, they have this recognition that the Messiah is come. Y'all, that's what they declare. This is why God leads them to quote from Psalm 118, this psalm of ascent, this psalm sung as they walked up to Jerusalem. This is why he led them to a messianic portion of this, a portion that they believe was true of the Messiah, that as he came, what they wanted from him was salvation. Save save us. If you were to ask them, who do you say that this is on the horse? The people before, the people behind, the people walking with him, they would say, I think it's the Messiah. I think that's who he is. He's here to set all this mess straight. He's here to set all of this stuff in right order. Jesus coming into town, coming on into Jerusalem, says when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. And they all begin to ask, not those in the crowd, but all those in the city, who is this? And from the crowds, they begin to cry out, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Y'all, they were so close. They knew where he was from. They knew something of his function. This is what they supposed his occupation to be. He is one declaring God. He is engaging in prophecy. But what we go on to read just a few days later is that some of those who cried, save us, son of David, would be, be among those who cried out, we don't want Jesus to be set free, we want Barabbas. They would be those who say, discourage him isn't enough, crucify him. It seems that they were those who were swayed among the popular opinion of what it looked like was appropriate to say who Jesus is. See, as we sit here this morning, we come to this understanding that it is important that if you're a Christian in this place, that if you'd say, man, I name the name Jesus, I have confessed my sins, I have turned from them, I have believed on God, that God 
that Jesus died, he took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for my sin, that on the third day God raised him up to newness of life, that he overcame sin and death so that I don't have to die my sin. Can I tell you that if that's true of you, then how you answer the question of who Jesus is should be evident, should be revealed in how you live. Now, for those of us in this room who are Pharisees and legalists, and that's just kind of our bend, when it says a cup, it's a cup. When it says 55, we don't think about driving 60. Y'all, I don't get you on the second one, but you can just stick with me. All these various things that you find yourself aligning with the law perfectly. What you hear, my fear is in that moment, of when I say who you say Jesus is should show up in the way you live your life, is that I need to do more. I need to give more, I need to attend more faithfully, I need to share the gospel more, I need to share the gospel, period. I need to pray more, read the Bible more, do these things. Would you let it sink into your heart and mind right now that what God wants isn't more stuff from you? He wants a greater part of your heart. And when you yield over to him increasing measure and increasingly greater portions of your heart, you will find yourself living faithfully. You'll find things that you're doing now and ways that you're being now and things you're thinking now that are really second nature and you don't even begin to take these things into account. You will find these things moving away from you because he holds such an immense part of your heart. Is the people of God in this place, is the people within this city who name the name of Jesus, is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the lover of my soul. He has ransomed me. He has paid the penalty for my sin. My life, and if that's true of you, then your life is his. How does it feel to you to submit your life to him, to ask him to direct all your days in all the various ways that he would call you to live? This is what it is to be a follower of Christ. But we see so many different responses in here. You see, some of the people, when they were asked within this, who is Jesus, we recognize simply that they are unsure. They're unsure about who Jesus is. Peter knew something about Jesus. He nailed it, right? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus praises him, and then moments later, within the reading of the text, what we find is Peter moving in direct opposition to the plan and the purposes of God. It's not enough to know who he is in here. We must find ourselves moving to align ourselves with God's will. So maybe where you are and where you sit in this place, you'd say, I understand something about who God is, but I find myself struggling with what he's calling me to do. Others we find were just utterly confused. They were utterly confused when Jesus turned to the disciples and said, who do people say that I am? I mean, really, the list ran, right? It's, it's possible you're this guy who was killed, who's been raised from the dead, and that's why you're out conducting miracles. It's also possible you're this guy we've been waiting on a long time. You're important, but you're not that important. It's also possible you're, 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 you're Jeremiah, let's throw him a bone, or you're just one of the other kind of panoply of uh, prophets. People are kind of out on you, Jesus. We just don't really know. 
Maybe in here, this is where you find yourself. You've come to believe and understand that I believe Jesus probably historically existed. I think there are portions of the Bible that are likely true. But there's just a lot I'm not really sure about him. I certainly like the thought of loving your neighbor, loving your enemy. I certainly like that when it's coming this way. I'm not so sure how I feel about it when it's going that way. I think you'll find that many of us, in the midst of, of determining who Jesus is, we're most comfortable fashioning Jesus into our own image. So we find Jesus being the one who advocates for whatever cause we give ourselves to. So if you tend to align yourself with what are just kind of culturally thought of as, as uh, being more on the liberal side of things, it's, it's compassion for the poor, it's caring for the minority, it's, it's caring for the disenfranchised. We say, this is my Jesus, and this is him all over here, and I love this aspect of him. Because he aligns with my needs, he aligns with my interests, he aligns with my vote. Maybe you're on the other side, and you say, no, the Jesus that I'm more aligned with is over here, and he's engaging in justice, and he's engaging in righteousness, and yes, he cares for them, but within the bounds of the law. And I don't understand the Jesus on the other side. You don't really want to follow him. You don't really want to give your life to him. You care nothing about the fact that he died for your sins. You really, really only want the influence of Jesus. So he's this morally influential character. Both of those miss him. Both of those miss him. Maybe you find yourself not being indifferent, not being confused, not being unsure, but you find yourself today, if you're going to be honest, man, you are opposed to Jesus. I'll be honest, as I stand here and I talk to you and my heart breaks for you, I have no idea why you're personally opposed to Jesus. But what I want you to hear is that present within this passage are the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They all found themselves being opposed to Jesus. He still died for you. He still suffered for you. He allowed himself to be broken for you. Knowing even in his person 2,000 years ago of the rebellion of your heart, your hatred, your disdain for him, your lack of care for him or anything he would do for you, he went to the cross in some sense for you and for your rebellion. And in that he loves you. And in that, he cares for you. Acts 4 and verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no neutral position and response to how we answer the question of who Jesus is. And my prayer is that the people of Jesus in this city and in this church would live such transformed lives that we would engage so well that people could not help but have an encounter with Jesus as they meet him through us. And my prayer for you this morning, if you find yourself being confused, unsure, indifferent, or radically opposed to the person of Jesus, that you would move from those positions 
and you would cry out to him, Hosanna, son of David, God in the highest, save me, please. Would you pray with me? God, we come into this place and we thank you for your love and care for us. God, I pray that as we give ourselves to the reflection of your word, God, you know our hearts, you know where we are in this place at this time. Some of us, what we need to do is to come and to pray. And so, God, I pray that you would lead us in that prayer. Some of us need to turn to the person beside us and say, would you tell me how I can follow Jesus? God, would you lead us to be faithful to you? Would you lead us to worship you and give ourselves to you and how we respond to who the Bible reveals Jesus to be? God, we pray these things in his name, and we ask this to be done in his name as well. In Christ's name, amen.